Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Michael Landsberg, anchoring TSN Sports Desk over 5,000 times and then originating and hosting TSN's off-the-record sports debate show for almost 4,000 episodes over a further 18 years. Michael is an icon in Canadian sports broadcasting. But his successes came with difficulties, and in 2009, he publicly shared his then-decade-long battle with severe depression. Convinced that the mental health stigma stems from the perception of weakness, in 2016, he founded the charitable organization Sick Not Weak as both a resource and an awareness tool. Welcome, Michael, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm going to uh, answer my own question because that's the way uh, that's the way I run. And maybe I'll wrestle the whole thing away from me and you'll have to fight to get it back. But uh, thank you for having me. Uh, lovely introduction. I think I think it's my duty. And I'm being serious here to qualify the fact that your show is called Toronto Legends. And if I don't acknowledge that, the assumption would be that I believe I'm a Toronto legend. So I'm just here to say I didn't name myself a legend. I don't see myself as a legend. But the fact that you invited me on to talk and the name of your show is Toronto Legends, I'm good with that. I'm sitting at home on my uh, third floor at Bathurston College. I lived uh, within five minutes of Bathurst and Eglinton all my life. And then about a year and a half ago, we moved down here and I'm loving it. Um, let's see, what else did you ask me? Well, um, I, I want to jump right in, Michael, into why you are a legend and mix some legend. We never met before, but very recently, I was in a pub in a hockey arena at Downsview Park enjoying a nice lunch with my new friend, Toronto Maple Leafs legendary captain, three-time 50-goal scorer Rick Vive. Hey, wait, hey, hey, hold on one sec. This, his show, like now all of a sudden, you know, the uh, the captain, the all-star, the three-time 50-goal, I'm getting jealous. It's not about Vive, it's about me. Well, you're about to go down another peg, you'll see, because during this lunch, Rick excused himself to leave the pub and accept some sort of delivery. Now, unless my eyes were deceiving me, the delivery person was none other than legendary broadcaster Michael Landsberg. Now, I did not find this strange, as I knew that another Maple Leafs legend, the great Thomas Caberlet, was also doing deliveries in his retirement. So, Michael, although none of my business, I have to ask if you have joined... Thomas Caberlet's apparently thriving delivery business. And what exactly were you delivering to Mr. Rick Five? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, you can ask me anything. I mean, when you talk about mental health, the real value is in the deeper you go, the more candid you are, the more raw, the more that you share of yourself. Um, I think the more effective you are. So uh, I can handle anything you ask me. Asking me what I was delivering is not a challenging question. My my daughter, uh, Casey, has a cookie company uh, called Sweetsies. And I am very proud to say that I am the director of transportation. So I uh, I help her with deliveries from time to time. And when she said, oh, Rick Vive ordered four dozen cookies, I said, well, and I want to take them to Rick Vive because Rick was a guest on Off the Record probably 25 times. A uh, good friend that I obviously lost touch with when the show uh, when the show ended, but great to see him. I got to meet you, and now I'm on uh, Toronto Legends trying to prove that I'm a legend. Well, in addition to cookie deliveries and supporting the family business, what is Michael Landsberg up to in 2023? You know, I think the answer to that is I'm, I'm talking mental health. You know, I was really uh, <laughs> the worst thing in my life, uh, personally, not from the standpoint of what other people in my life that I care about have experienced, 
But personally, the worst thing in my life, the worst illness I've had, the worst time in my life has has all been about mental illness. Anxiety is a kid that really shaped my life, even though I had a wonderful childhood with amazing parents. Uh, I was overcome by anxiety, and it shaped a lot of the decisions I made as a kid. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, uh, depression, uh, depression for the last two decades. And what I have found is that awful experience is also one of the best experiences of my life because I get to use one of the worst things in my life as one of my best things in my life, and that is talking about mental illness, sharing my experience, and trying to use that to make a difference to somebody else. So uh, what am I doing? I'm talking mental health, and uh, I'm kind of sort of loving it. Well, before we get to the mental health initiatives that you're working on with Sick Not Weak, I do want to go back, if I may, all the way, get your story. I know you bleed blue and white, and this being a Toronto-centric podcast, feel free to be detailed with postal districts, school names, and streets. Where were you born? And talk a little about your upbringing. Uh, I was born at Bathurst and Eglinton. My grandfather built the house in 1944. And God, you know, when you're a kid, the stories of your grandparents don't really mean much. But I had such fascinating, my, my grandfather and my grandmother on my mom's side were such fascinating people. My grandfather was a communist uh, who uh, eventually made his way over to Russia after World War II uh, and found, I think this was probably in the 50s or the early 60s, and found that Russia was an awful place. So he gave up his, his communism and became an NDP type. But to have a conversation with him now would be the most amazing thing. But when you're a kid, you don't think about these things. So uh, my grandfather built the house that we lived in at 157 Old Forest Hill Road in the heart of Forest Hill. Uh, he bought the lot for $2,000 and where we all lamented, God, why didn't you buy the whole damn street? But but Michael, he thought he overpaid, I bet. I bet you he did for sure. Uh, it perhaps was a different time. And the reason why I mentioned that is that my dad passed away a year and a half ago. And when he died, my mom had uh, was uh, had passed away about four years before. So my parents were gone and we sold the house, my brother and I. And it was, it, you know, of all the things that I went through, my dad was 92 years old. He had an amazing life. Like, there's not a part of me that was like, oh, poor me, I lost my dad. I mean, it's still sad. But, you know, it was more for me a celebration of this amazing man, this legendary orthodontist in Toronto. You talk about Toronto legends. Ron Landsberg, come back to him in a second, was a legend. So uh, we we just sold the house and uh, I found it really hard to drive by it now. I You know, like you can see where the house was driving north on Bathurst. You can see it if you look uh, to the right. It's right beside the bridge. And... You know, I just, it really pulls at my heart because this, this house was like my family's house. It, like everybody knew it as the Landsberg house from different generations. And uh, that kind of makes me sad, but that's my upbringing all the way in Toronto. I've never lived any place else. So this has got to, you know, really give me a boost in the Toronto legend rankings. I, I was born in Toronto. I married a woman from Toronto. I went to the University of Toronto. I failed out of the University of Toronto. You might want to ask me that. Uh, I went to Ryerson for broadcasting. I worked at News Talk 1010 while I was going to school. When I graduated, I got a job at CHFI Radio. And a year and a half after that, I got a job at TSN. And I lived in Toronto every second of my life. 
you were with TSN, the sports network, since its inception, 1984, by the Labatt Brewing Company, 27 years old, no TV experience other than as a volunteer at was then the McLean Hunter Channel 10 Community Station. How'd you get that gig? And what saw you in the end anchoring over 5,000 sport desks? Oh, I know 100% what got me through. Uh, How did I get a job that was only one of four jobs at the sports network? And even nationally, how many jobs were there in broadcasting at that point in sports? You know, like CBC had a handful of people and CTV had a couple of people. And that was it. So how could a guy with no experience, never been on television, real television, get that job? And the answer is humility. Here's what I, I need to qualify that because that build up to this statement did not sound terribly humble. I was humble enough to realize that I sucked at broadcasting and that quickly I realized that everyone, when they start out, is no good. But the difference between me and the 13 other people that I went to Ryerson Radio and Television with who also wanted to do sports broadcasting was they thought they were great. And I knew that I was terrible. I also knew I was better than them. And I thought I was terrible. So I worked and I worked and I worked and I took voice lessons. And every time I drove in the car, I would just talk. Hi, I'm Michael Landsberg. And let's talk about the Maple Leafs. Oh, my God. They fired their general manager after going five against a team who's now going to sweep a better team than the Maple Like, so I would just drive and I would talk. And every time I got uh, the chance to talk in front of a camera, I would do it. And when I say that, it was community television. You know, community television was not exactly the top of the broadcast field. But even though I was working in radio professionally, I was still volunteering. So I got my job because I knew that I needed to get better. I knew that I needed to work. And I knew that broadcasting in a lot of ways is like playing a musical instrument. Every time you do it, you get better. And well, you certainly put in your time because after these 5,000 sports desks, You then transitioned from Sports Desk to the brand new sports debate show, Off the Record, for its debut in 1997. Michael, how'd that transition work? I I mean, without a doubt, the two best experiences for me in broadcasting were just in general off the record, for sure, uh, and the 2010 Olympics. Uh, Off the record was this, you know, this amazing gift. And I used to say to people all the time who would say, wow, you got like the most amazing job. And I say that because I got to meet everyone. And when I say everyone, I got to meet performers in sports, uh, you know, athletes, hockey players, football players, basketball players, everything you can imagine, the coaches, the general managers, the presidents, the owners. I got to meet all of those people, but I got to meet actors and musicians and politicians and people from like literally every walk of life. That is such a gift to be able to not only meet those people, but get to know those people, ask those people questions. And, you know, from a a really fun standpoint, to be honest, I got to control their lives for like 90 minutes. You know, we had famous directors on from Hollywood and I got to sit there and tell Spike Lee, "Okay, Spike, here's how we're going to do the show. And here's what I really need from you. That was an amazing job, an amazing gift. And as I would say to people very often when they would talk about what a great job it was, I would say, you know, there's lots of people that could do my job. I'm lucky to have my job. And I don't think I ever did a show without appreciating, you know, the gift that I was given this thing called Off the Record. Humility and gratitude. Those are two things quickly jumping out. I do want to ask you, Michael, about your memories from some very notable off-the-record episodes. Mm -hmm. During a panel featuring KISS co-founder Gene Simmons, 
TV personality Thea Andrews and Olympic gold medalist Mark Tewksbury, Gene Simmons told Thea Andrews he had slept with 4,500 women, to which Andrews replied she was not interested in being 4,501. Jumping into the conversation, Mark Tewksbury offered himself to Simmons instead, to which Simmons declined. What do you remember about that? I remember sitting there going, okay, Michael, one of the toughest lessons as a broadcaster to learn is when to shut up because your job is talking, right? But if you don't shut up at the right times, you can miss out on the gold. So it was like, okay, don't say anything. Don't say anything. This amazing thing is unfolding all spontaneously. None of it's scripted. All of it just from the heart. And it was just, I mean, Thea was, uh, Thea is a lovely, beautiful woman. You know, uh, Gene Simmons was, was, was actually had his hand on her leg. I mean, this is stuff that probably now we'd have to stop tape and say, Gene, what the hell are you doing? Now, I was thinking, Gene, what the hell are you doing? Uh, I knew that Thea could turn it into something good. So she said, I don't want to be number 4,501. And as you said, Mark Tewksbury put his hand up very sheepishly and said, I'd like to be number 4,501. And the background of that story uh, is that Mark Tewksbury uh, won a gold medal in the two thousand, sorry, the 1992 Olympics in the 50-meter backstroke. Uh, shortly after he won the gold medal, he came out of the closet and announced that, 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 he was, uh, that he was gay. So it was relevant from that standpoint that here he was, you know, saying, I'd like to be that. But the best part of this story is that Tewksbury, who I got to be friends with, who I adore, who I think is one of the most uh, smartest, most interesting people that I've met over the course of my career, said that when he was a kid, he had a poster of Kiss and Gene Simmons up on the wall in his room. And he said, one of the things that taught me, um, suggested to me, alerted me to the fact that I was gay was my sexual attraction to Gene Simmons. Mm. So like the background of that story is crazy. I mean, it, it, he it, like just the fact that they were on this show together, just the fact that Mark Tewksbury, who, who virtually knew nothing about the show, could not have told you how many hockey players are on the ice at one time, couldn't have told you um, how many downs there are in Canadian football and American football, is on a sports talk show. It was fabulous. Well, it was surreal. And to take it to another level, I understand that this interaction eventually got uh, transferred over to the Howard Stern show. That is uh, that is true. I was measuring in my head whether to mention that because... Uh, so Gene Simmons, let's face it. When you are a storyteller, you always look for opportunities to make the story a little bit better, to round it out. And if you got to embellish a bit, you do. Um, so Gene Simmons was clearly of the uh, embellishment category. Uh, he said... Uh, on the Howard Stern show, he said, you know, I guess Stern asked him about media experiences or whatever. He said, can you imagine I was on a Toronto sports show and a gay swimmer tried to give me oral sex during the show? And it's like, okay. I mean, that never happened. But you can see the leap that he made in the name of telling a better story. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was uh, a crazy, crazy story. Uh, and he was uh, it, he was kind of disgraceful, you know, like just the way he talked about women, just the way he looked at women, just the way. I mean, it was it was his shtick, but it was uh, I, I, I did not like it. Even back then, I was aware of the fact that, you know, like he shouldn't be allowed to do the things he does. 
Well, you also were able to bring people together. I had ex-NHL referee Paul Dvorsky on this podcast discussing the infamous 1997 brawl between Detroit and Colorado, the two key figures involved being Claude Lemieux and Darren McCarty. Michael, you brought both of these men, Lemieux and McCarty, onto Off the Record together for the first time since the incident. How did it go at the beginning of your joint interview versus how did it end up? So the thing was that Claude Lemieux, um, we booked him to do the show once. And he walked in and immediately, just from the way he was walking, from the what he said, within 10 seconds, I knew he was a great guy. I knew that his persona on the ice and the things that he did on the ice were not in any way a reflection of who he was off the ice as a person. I loved the guy. I thought he was just super smart, super real, uh, super down to earth and uh, willing to willing to poke fun at himself, which I always say is, you know, it's like one of the most attractive qualities a human can have is the ability to be self-deprecating. And I, I always talk about how, you know, I can dish it, but I can take it and he could dish it and he could take it. So he was kind of a regular. And I said to him, would you come on the show with Darren McCarty? And he said, well, I haven't seen Darren McCarty since after, you know, that series when, uh, you know, what happened was uh, he hit Claude Draper from behind. Claude Draper fell face first into the boards, really broke a lot of bones in his face, swelled up. So when he did post-game interviews, you know, he looked like a monster uh, and it became this really famous thing. And then McCarty came to Draper's defense in the next game where at puck drop, uh, he grabbed a hold of him, punched him once, and then uh, Lemieux, I think, let him hit him once and then went down and turtled and protected his head. So Mike, he if said, I can, just, if I can yeah. just add something to that. After that, McCarty did not get thrown out of the game and subsequently went on to score in overtime. I, I believe it was the prettiest goal of his career, too. It was like he split the defense, which was, you know, he split a lot of defensive heads, but he didn't split a lot of defenses. So the thing that... Uh, uh, that made this special was the fact that they had not talked since then. And uh, somehow we were able to convince Darren McCarty that he should do a TV show with a guy that he despised. He said, okay, I'll do it. But you could see he was coming in with, you know, with, with an attitude, right? Um, of, I hate this guy and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to give in to him, so to speak. So we scheduled, I don't taping, we usually taped at like, uh, let's say 2 p.m. for a 6 p.m. show. So he, he uh, Claude Lemieux shows up half hour early, which is what we ask guests to do. And we're sitting around talking. I say, hey, let's just go down a set uh, and makeup will come down here. And when, when uh, Derek gets here, we can, you know, just get him some quick makeup and we can start. He says, okay, we're down there for two hours waiting and McCarty hasn't shown up. At this point, we're, we're pretty sure he's just saying, screw you, and he's not showing up. It then uh, op- the door opens and in walks Darren McCarty. And I could tell from the look on his face, he was not amused by this. Oh, my God, it's like a high school reunion. There's my buddy Claude Lemieux. Like, he still hated him. He sat down. The body language just said, I have no interest in talking to this guy. You know, we started the show. And Claude, if I remember correctly, you know, kind of, kind of said, Hey, I, I know that I was wrong. I did things on the ice. I'm not proud of, you know, I did things on the ice that I would come home and my wife would say, what the hell's the matter with you? And gradually Darren started to loosen up. And by the end of the show, they were laughing and giggling together. And when the show ended, they walked off together. And all of a sudden, you know, you realized, okay, you know, they have both put it behind them far easier for Claude than, than Darren. And I thought, wow, you know, that show 
will be watched by, you know, uh, at our best time, we would get 100,000 viewers, say, watching off the record, which is a tiny fraction of the country. And I lamented as they were leaving the fact that not more people would see that because I just thought it was like the coolest thing. These guys that hated each other, these guys that had history, um, all of a sudden had bonded. Well, that was a bonding, a different kind of bonding was when you had legendary Canadian singer Dan Hill, he of Sometimes When We Touch, along with boxing great and part-time crooner Manny Pac-Man Pacquiao. Uh, that was a very different kind of bonding. You know, that was, uh, th- that's true. I had forgotten a lot about this because, you know, when you do, first of all, you know, I don't think about the show much because, you know, I'm a real believer that you live in the present, uh, not the past. So it's not like I'm sitting around thinking, oh, wow, those were the good old days. But you bringing that up, you know, makes me smile. So the story was that Manny Pacquiao was uh, was doing promotion for an upcoming fight. I think it may have been the Mayweather fight. Uh, and he was on The Tonight Show. And he's saying sometimes when we touch. And we booked him uh, to do off the record via satellite. And he was doing a junket. I don't know uh, if everyone knows what a junket is, but it's say, okay, they've got two hours People apply and say, hey, I'd like 10 minutes with him. So they say, okay, you know, Toronto, TSN, off the record, Michael Landsberg, you have Manny Pacquiao from 3.30 to 3.40. So uh, I thought, uh, and I think it was me that thought of it, we should get Dan Hill, who lives in Toronto, to be on the show, but Manny Pacquiao won't be able to see him because in the technical world of television, we can see Manny via satellite at this junket he's doing, but there's no return feed, so he can't see who's talking to them. So he can't see Dan Hill. So I say, hey, Manny, uh, you know, what uh, what song, you know, what song are you singing or whatever? And he goes, sometimes when we touch. I go, oh, okay, does, does it sound like this? Sometimes when we touch. And you can see on his face, he's going... What? That's that's Dan Hill for sure. And I said, uh, Manny, please meet Dan Hill. And he was like, all of a sudden, you know, this uninterested Manny Pacquiao was going, oh, my God, I'm doing another interview with some guy I don't know. Um, all of a sudden, he was like so engaged. And I, I said, you know, could we do this? Could could Dan sing like a line and then you sing a line sometimes when we touch and then you come in with the honesties too much and then he comes in. Like, would you do that? And he said, absolutely. And they did it. And they went back and forth. And I just thought, wow, was that ever fun? Unfortunately, the director, who was my friend, uh, so when I insult him, uh, Ben was his, is his name, worst directing of a TV show ever. He didn't catch one of them saying their line. All of a sudden, Dan Hill is singing, and we're seeing Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao is singing, and we're seeing Dan Hill. And it's like, oh, my God, we can't even redo it. But that was uh, that was fun. Well, that was surreal. And it just shows, you know, people are people. And another one that stuck out from you, Michael, was you taped a segment with NBA All-Star Dikembe Mutombo as a parking lot attendant who gave you his patented finger wave denial of service. That is, uh, that's making me smile. This is fun, man. You uh, love the research you did and how you're throwing these things out there. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo, he was a guest on Off the Record. I'm, I'm thinking when. It must have been in the early days, the first time I met him, because it was in our studio at Shepherd in Victoria Park, and he was on with George Strombolopoulos, and we had this really fun show where Dikembe Mutombo proved to be one of the nicest guys, one of the most self-deprecating guys, 
um, and one of the most interesting guys that I'd met. And he did the show probably at, um, every couple of years. Something would bring him to Toronto and we would have access to him. And then this one time he was on, it was during Movember. And it was the only time in my life I've ever had a mustache. And I was, uh, I mean, this isn't necessarily part of the story, but I was humiliated by the mustache. I honestly, I just felt like the biggest creep in the world. I thought everybody was looking at me. I wanted to walk into every room that I walked in and say, uh, attention, please. This mustache is only because of Movember. I am not endorsing this mustache. I do not think it looks good. But Dikembe, I said to him, would you, do you want to play along a little bit and let's, let us do a little skit? And he said, sure. What are you up for? So I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we go out to before the parking gate and I will drive my car up to the parking gate. You will play the role of the parking lot attendant. I will say, uh, hey, you know, Dikembe Matumbo, what are you doing here, man? And he'll say, uh, you know, can I see your pass and I'll show you my pass. And I'll say, oh, can I go in? And he, he, I, I said to him, you reject me like you would if it was a basketball game. So he said, yeah, let's do it. So we get there. Uh, I say, hey, can I go in? He goes, no, 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 not with that mustache. And I, uh, I thought, what a great guy. What a great guy. And what a great example of you never know till you ask. And it made all of the really good guys in my head go, uh, made me recall things like him. And then it made me recall all the prima donnas who, who just didn't want to give anything. You, meatloaf, meatloaf. I passed away, I guess, of COVID. So I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. But he came to do the show once uh, in the early days. And man, was he ever in a mood. He was fighting, screaming with his agent. Uh, came on the show, did the show. It was like neither here nor there. Came back, I don't know, six, seven years later. His agent gave us a rider, which means the, the food and, and the things that we have to get for him for the green room, which I think in our whole time, there was probably five people who gave riders. He gives us a rider. It has 22 different liquids on it, ranging from Diet Coke, the easy one, to Diet Dr. Pepper, not so easy, to Diet Root Beer of a certain kind, to a Starbucks this, Starbucks that. It was absurd. So we, you know, we, like we're in the green room and we're all talking and I'm telling them about the topics for the show. And he's not drinking anything. So I say, you know, do you want something? He goes, no. And I said, well, like, why, why would you tell us to get 22 drinks that we have to search all over the city for? And he said, because I can. Mm. And I thought, oh, that, that's true, but not necessarily something to be proud of. Michael, on that note, because you have interviewed so many different guests, what is the difference between good people and good guests? Huge difference. You know, what's, say, say Michael, what's, what's a bad guest? What is a bad guest, Michael Lansbury? A bad guest can be uh, the best person in the world, but boring uh, and dull. And, you know, like there's there's no way you can you can take boring and dull after the show is done and say, well, you know, that wasn't bad. That's the death of television, right? You could take the worst person in the world, uh, you know, totally offended by me, you know, pissed off at every question I asked, even if they sulked. And said nothing. If they were famous enough, there's a story behind a famous person sulking and saying nothing. But dull and dry and um, and just kind of lifeless, that's, that's death. And the best guest is someone that does something exceptional. Whether it's exceptionally smart talk, 
that you know makes some amazing points where you go, wow, I just really learned something about about the NBA, or whether it's fighting me, um, which I like the most. My favorite guests were people that I thought were smarter than me, and then I could challenge them to the best of my abilities without looking like a bully. So uh, the the best guests and the worst guests had nothing to do with who's the best person, who's the worst person. It had nothing to do with who do I like and who do I dislike. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, like, what did you give us? In addition to best guests not necessarily being great people, the best episodes or the most popular episodes from off the record were wrestlers. And I don't even think you enjoy wrestling, Michael. That is uh, that is that is true. It's weird because, uh, you know, when I walk on, I told you I live at Bathurst College, when I walk my dog on College Street, um, I would say a couple of days a week still. And our wrestling shows um, were all before 2000. And I think the last one we did was probably 2004. So you're talking about a long time ago. And our most famous ones with Bret Hart and with uh, Vince McMahon were all, you know, 1998, 99, 2000. So we're talking about 25 years ago. And still walking down the street, someone will go, hey, Landsberg, love the wrestling shows. Hey, Landsberg, I just watched the wrestling shows again. I went, you watched them again? Like, how, how many were there? Uh, 28 of them. I loved it. Uh, and, you know, I people will say, oh, you know, like, what was that like? And I am totally candid and honest. And I defer all the credit. I mean, they were really good shows. And they were good shows because I had amazing research. But I got the research from a guy named Jeff Merrick, who you see doing hockey on, on Sportsnet. Jeff did a show called Live Audio Wrestling. And Jeff and Bob Makowitz, the producer of Off the Record, were best friends. So I got to be friends with Jeff. So when we heard that um, Stone Cold was going to be on the show, um, we would call Jeff. He would come in for a day and he would give me all of the gold about Stone Cold. All of the, like, what's happened behind the scenes that has been interesting, controversial, difficult, who does he hate? Nothing to do with, with the character. And people just ate that up because they were meeting these people for the first time. And in some cases, still the only time. You know, like now guys have podcasts, but for 20 years, Undertaker went without Mark Calloway, went without doing another shoot interview. It was all, you know, just to work. So we got the best information. I said to Undertaker once, tell me about the story. Is it true that Shawn Michaels in a house show was out uh, in the ring and he was supposed to lose, which they called doing the job, uh, and he didn't. So he didn't do the job. And he came back into the locker room and you looked him in the eyes and said, you get back out there and you lose, you do the job for Vince, or I'm going to kill you. And I said that to him only because Jeff Merrick told me that, right? And he looks at me and goes, oh, well, I didn't, didn't think anyone knew that story. That is correct. So we had this gold. Uh, TSN had a deal with uh, then WWF, then uh, turned to WWE. They broadcast Raw. So as uh, broadcast rights holders uh, with a talk show that wanted to do different things, Vince gave us all of his uh, his whole roster. He said, you can have it, including him. So that was uh, that was amazing. It was a gift to us. Uh, the questions were a gift to me uh, and still by far the thing that people would associate most with me. But no, I'm not a wrestling fan. 
And it's interesting that you say people saw them over and over because you did repeat episodes, but you didn't call them repeats. I love what you call a show being shown again. Alternate alternate viewing opportunities. Uh, that was not my saying. That was TSN's, right? You know, like repeat sounds like, why bother watching? Alternate viewing opportunities kind of goes, wow, you have another chance to watch the same show you just watched. But yeah, we we played a, the Stone Cold interview on a holiday Monday, and it had already played five times, uh, and it got an audience of 450,000 people. I'm telling you now, at 6 o'clock, TSN plays SportsCenter, does SportsCenter, right? I bet you they don't get more than 30,000 people watching. So this is not me bragging in any way. This is me saying, A, the power of wrestling, the only portable audience that has ever existed. I mean, the hockey audience isn't portable. They won't go to you because you have a hockey player because they can see that hockey player anywhere. You know, you could say we got Bobby Hall, the ghost of Bobby Hall, uh, the ghost of Gordie Howe, uh, Jesus Christ coming back because he was a big Bobby Hall fan. And, uh, and the fourth person, I guess it wouldn't even matter. And you probably, back in those days, you would have done 120,000. But for Stone Cold Steve Austin, 450,000. TV was very different at that time. Uh, and also wrestling was, uh, was, just, it was just so massive with people. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Nelson Millman, Evan Solomon, Wendy Mesley, Ted Wallison, and Terry O'Reilly, how they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Something big in your wheelhouse is mentorship, and this is your time to brag, Michael. Over your career, you've had many interns, you've introduced many fresh scrub newbies to broadcasting. Do you want to give a shout-out to any of your broadcasting children that went on to make it big? Ah, uh, well, you know, there's, uh, I, I doubt I can even remember all of them. Uh, I will take no credit for them except, uh, instilling a couple of things. Uh, I believe Carolyn Cameron, for instance, who, who you see on, on Sportsnet, um, was not surprisingly a great intern, um, super smart, super driven. And the things that I would talk about with interns was always, uh, how do you carry yourself as, as a broadcaster at the, as the host of a show? I, I kind of lived that by never distinguishing between me and other people in the crew. I tried never to make my happiness more important than anybody else's, right? I never said my show, ever. Not once did I ever say, oh, my show, off the record, on my show. Never said that because I never saw it as my show. I was the host of the show, but it wasn't my show. It was everyone's show. And the idea of hard work, you know, I remember taking Carolyn Cameron down to the studio, I think if it was her and saying, OK, let's uh, let's read the teleprompter, uh, you know, write a script, read the teleprompter. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to stand back and listen to you and I'm going to, you know, toss out some ideas. Don't listen to everyone's ideas. If you are a young broadcaster and you want to be a really good broadcaster, you should ask people their opinions. But you can't believe all of the opinions. You can't give everyone credit for knowing more about it than you. Because I remember when I started, people would go, Michael, 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 you are reading way too fast. And then I would walk down the hall to the next boss of mine, and he would go, Michael, can, can you pick up the pace, man? Come on. 
And it was like, so you you got to measure as a young broadcaster, you know, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Off the Record had an incredible run, almost 4,000 shows over 18 years with its finale in 2015. I think it was 2016. I guess what I want to ask is at that point you had had enough or was it simply time to end it? A combination of a lot of things. You know, uh, OTR, I would say two years before the show was canceled, I said to my wife uh, and to people on the crew, I said, you know, you know, our time is limited. This show will be canceled because TV is changing. TV is dying, first of all. Live sports isn't dying, but everything else is dying on every sports channel everywhere. Uh, and they are eventually going to come to the conclusion that, you know what, we could we can do an extra half hour of Sports Center, which is going to cost us pennies to do. And, you know, maybe we'll get the same audience. Maybe we'll get a bit more. Maybe we'll get a bit less than off the record. But uh, it doesn't matter. It's going to cost us less. TV is, you know, as we know it, is disappearing, right? Like I told you that you could get, you know, we used to average over 100,000 for viewers at 6 o'clock. Now at 6 o'clock, I'm sure it's it's 30,000 you know, maybe tops. And that's not because, oh my God, I was way better than what they got now. It's because people don't watch TV anymore. You know, when we started out, every human being on the planet uh, who had any money or any every human being in Canada who, who was not impoverished had cable TV. It was kind of a must. And then, you know, probably by 2012, uh, half the uh, people that I would run into didn't have cable TV. Everyone under 25 went, nah, I don't have cable. So it was dying, and I knew it was dying, and I knew it had to mean the end of Off the Record. So I prepared myself for it. I never let myself be defined by the job. I was never Michael Landsberg, the host of Off the Record on TSN. I was always, always Michael Landsberg, uh, Karen's husband, Corey and Casey's father, Ronnie and Annalise's son. Uh, and uh, that allowed me, I think, to walk away from the show when it was canceled. Uh, and not think about it again. It was like, okay, I'm done. What's next? Well, and what was next was we fast forward through some radio work, including mornings with Carlo Koliakovo. And then on July 30th, 2021, Bell Media puts out a press release that after 37 years, Michael Landsberg was leaving the mother corporation. I am not a journalist. Michael, you are my guest. What do you want to say or not say about that divorce almost two years ago? Um, I, I would say that... Uh... Let's see. Show finished at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, this was during the pandemic, so I was at home. Uh, I got a call from Stu Johnston, who was uh, who was my boss's boss, who I'd worked with for years and years. Uh, and Stu said, uh, hey, Michael, uh, you know, let's uh, let's set up a time to do a Zoom call. So I said to him, uh, OK, what are you thinking? He goes, no, no, we'll talk about it. I go, Stu. I understand the industry as well as anyone. I know you better than anyone. You have never said to me, let's set up a Zoom call. Let's, I, I don't want to wait till Friday because that's what was the first available time. He said, oh, okay. I said, what do you want? He said, what do you want? I said, call me tomorrow morning uh, when the show's over. He said, okay. So he calls me. I go, you know, hey, Stu, what's going on? And he's talking about, you know, going... Uh, you know, what's doing with this and how's Corey and Casey and oh my God, like you have a new dog or whatever. I go, Stu, get to the point. I know what you're going to say. I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. As a matter of fact, I just want to hear you say it. So relax. 
So eventually he kind of stammers and says, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're going in a different direction. And I said, there, was that so hard? And, you know, I kind of looked at it like, uh, okay, well, you know, this is my next opportunity to do something in my life because I don't know when I would have given up on it because, you know, giving up a, a you know, a good payday is tough to do. Uh, so this forced me to, um, do some things in my life that I wanted to do. So, uh, I love TSN. I love Stu. Uh, there was not a hint of animosity. Well, you were able to pour all your resources and your brain space into new initiatives around mental health, sick, not weak. Let's go back a little though, if I may. And I know you told us a hundred million times and, but you do want to tell it more because you want to spread the word. You hit your absolute low point in a Montreal hotel room in 2008. And this indirectly led to you speaking publicly for the first time in 2009 about your mental health challenges with none other than hockey superstar, Stefan Richet. Please share your experiences from that time. Okay, so here's the background. I got to go pretty quickly. Uh, first bout with depression was in early 1998. It was nothing like I expected it to be. Not that I expected ever to be depressed. I'd battled anxiety all my life. I had no idea what depression was. I was incredibly shocked. First of all, not knowing for six months that there was something wrong with me because the changes were so quick, so slight, so gentle that I had evolved into a totally different person without even knowing it. And it wasn't until I turned down an offer to do something that I really enjoyed doing that I realized, wow, why would I do that? Why did I turn that down? And I started to evaluate my life in the previous six to eight months. And I realized I'm a totally different person. The person I was is gone. The person I've been replaced with, I hate this person. I don't want to be this person. And that sort of was the, um, was the push I needed to go and, and get a diagnosis and get help. Fast forward now to 2008. Uh, I had been on meds, which had helped me, and off meds, which uh, had caused me to relapse. It happened four times. In 2008, uh, my daughter, uh, who has a chronic eye condition, had a really bad year, and my anxiety was through the worst, through the roof. I was obsessed with it. I couldn't think of anything else other than worry and panic. What happens? What happens if? What I found is that out-of-control anxiety, for me, leads me to depression. I found myself uh, with like just depression that is unimaginable to me at this point because I don't think the brain remembers pain. Like you can remember being in pain. You can remember thinking about the pain, but you can't remember what it felt like. You know, a woman can tell you that, hey, giving birth was the hardest thing physically I've ever had to do. Oh my God, the pain was terrible, but she can't relive the pain. So for me, when I talk about this, it, it, it haunts me, right? I, it's not that I don't want to talk about it, but it makes me emotional and it makes me scared because I know where I was on 11-2408, November 24th, 2008, YUL, the Montreal Airport Code, MH521, Marriott Hotel Room 521, 0400, 4 a.m. in the morning. I have that tattooed on my arm because that was the lowest point for me. I sat on the edge of my bed. After a year of falling into the deepest, darkest hole imaginable for me for depression. And I thought, wow, I know why people take their own lives. I understand it. And I wasn't really a risk to myself because I had been through it before. So I was not faced with the hopelessness someone who, who's never had successful treatment faces. So I knew that there was a chance that I could get better. But it was this experience where it all seemed really clear because I was way more afraid of having to 
go through the next day and the pain that I was in and to, uh, and to interact with people, which was so painful. Oh my God. It was just, it, and it was during the great cup. And I remember walking through the lobby and I saw Bob Abilovich who coached the Toronto Argos. And he was one of the first guys that I ever interviewed. And I knew Bob Abilovich's Toronto Argonauts better than anyone on the planet because I was obsessed with the Toronto Argos at that point. And he goes, Hey Mike, how you doing? He had a terrible voice. And I thought, Oh God, how am I going to get away from him? He's happy to see me. You know, he's going to want me to quiz him about, or he's going to quiz me about his teams. And I just thought, I wanted to cry because talking to people was just so painful. I just wanted to go to my hotel room and get on the bed and put everything and everyone out of my mind and just lie there. Uh, So that was how deep and low I was in 2008, November of 2008. Uh, by 2009, uh, in the fall, I was feeling uh, um, much better because of medication. Uh, and I remember reading, just before I went out to greet the guests on Off the Record, Stefan Richet was going to be a guest on the show. He'd never been on Off the Record before. I never met him before. And I read in doing research that he battled depression in the 1990s. It was the last thing that I read before I went out there. And it was in the last paragraph of the story I was reading. So just by chance, I saw it. So I went to the green room and I said, hey, Stefan, pleasure to meet you. Can you come outside? I just want to ask you something. He says, sure. So we're standing outside the green room and I say, "Uh, Stefan, I remember what he was wearing. I remember him leaning up against the wall. I said, would it uh, be okay if I asked you how you're doing with depression? Because I know you battled it in the 1990s. And he said, I don't like to talk about it. It's very painful. So I said, okay, well, I'm glad I asked you in advance. I don't want to cause you pain. You're my guest. Uh, But... If you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. He said, what would you talk about? So I told him about me. And he said, okay, let's do it. So for maybe two minutes on that show, we talked about depression. And when we finished talking about it, he was amazing, right? He said, imagine a Canadian kid, rookie of the year in the NHL, drafted by the Montreal Canadiens, my hometown team, last Montreal Canadian to score 50 goals, win the Stanley Cup of the Montreal Canadiens. None of that brought me any joy, none whatsoever. All I ever wanted to do was go home and get into bed. And I, I thought, wow, that is like the best example of what is depression, especially to a Canadian kid. Uh, and then I told my story in 45 seconds, basically, hey, you know, I have never had the successes you've had, but, you know, the things that I've loved in my life didn't bring me joy when I was depressed. And the show ended, and I thought that was it. Uh, I didn't think, oh, my God, we have changed people's lives. I thought, okay, well, that was an interesting show, which was my job as the host. Uh, but what changed the direction of my life was the reaction to that show. Every single email, 20 of them of the 22 Uh, from men that were talking about, you know, depression. They all said the same thing. They all said, hey, Michael, I want to tell you something I've never told another human being before. Watching you and Stefan Richet talk about depression without shame and embarrassment has allowed me the confidence to write to you and tell you, I, like you, have battled depression. But unlike you, I've never told anyone because I've been too ashamed and too embarrassed. But seeing the two of you talk has given me the confidence to realize that I don't have anything to be ashamed of. If you can do it, I can do it. And that changed the course of my life. Not only did it change the course of your life, but it led you into 
this kind of uh, loop, I guess, of feedback. And, and I want to give you some common caregiver feedback to mental illness. Just keep pushing. You will get through this. This too shall pass. And Michael, I know this is your personal favorite. Go for a walk and you'll feel better. Why are these tropes at best and counterproductive at worst? Okay, so they are very often based on on love, right? You know, uh, if you love someone, you want to try to help them with their pain and you make suggestions. So it's not done maliciously. It's just done out of ignorance uh, because I'm going to tell you right now, Andrew, you cannot understand severe depression unless you've experienced it. You think maybe you can because... You know, we've all gone through bad times in our lives. We've all said the words, you know, I'm depressed. I think that there's an arrogance that goes with the healthy brain that thinks, well, I've been through depression, but, you know, I didn't let it take me down. I just sucked it up and, you know, went about my life. And eventually, you know, I was tough enough that it faded. So I think people believe that they understand mental illness. There's no physical test for it. So it's not like you can look at someone and say, well, I I obviously don't have that because I don't have that rash on my face or whatever the physical illness would be. Or if you look at an x-ray of my lungs, they don't look like that. But mental illness, there is no way physically to prove it. So I kind of feel like everyone believes that they understand it better than they do. And if you care about someone and you think you understand it, you make some suggestions. Okay, Michael seems to be very sad. Michael doesn't get out of bed. Maybe Michael being in bed and feeling sad, maybe the two are related. So I'm going to tell Michael, you should go for a nice walk, which is fine. Or I'm going to get Michael a present, something that he really likes, which is fine. No one's going to say, don't do nice things for a person with depression. But if you believe it's a treatment for the depression, you are minimizing my illness. You are suggesting that my illness, which has devastated my life, which kills people, can actually reverse the illness. So, yeah, do nice things, but don't expect that it's going to be a treatment for the illness. And don't assume that you know what it's like because you don't. You can't know what it's like. It's unimaginable to me that anyone could possibly know what depression is like if they haven't battled it. Uh, because I was like that. It was like, holy smokes, this is the worst. I can't believe that this is what depression is. When I first realized that, you know, when I diagnosed myself after turning down this offer, I was shocked by what it was. No idea. What you're talking about is the difference between acknowledgement versus I know what you're going through. Yeah, you know, that that's 100% true. Those words, I know what you're going through. You better have battled the illness because you wouldn't say that with anything else. Would you walk to uh, a rehab hospital where uh, people with stroke are learning to talk again? Would you walk through and say to people, I know what you're going through? If you hadn't been, no, like that would be offensive to everyone, ridiculous, uh, and would be a terrible reflection of both your sensitivity and your intelligence. You know, would you walk through, um, you know, a Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto uh, where people were having chemotherapy and say to people, hey, I just wanted to drop by and say hi, which would be weird. Uh, just let you know, I know what you're going through. You're not alone. Oh, what kind of cancer did you have? No, I didn't have cancer, but I know what you're going through. It's ridiculous. But because it's mental illness, because there's no physical proof, because we all feel like we've been through tough, challenging times, we all believe we have the ability, the right to say, I know what you're going through. Well, as you note, being a caregiver for someone with a broken leg, it's black and white, clearly understood. 
But how can you be an effective caregiver when mental illness is so gray and so misunderstood? Yeah, it's really hard to care about someone with mental illness. You know, I've given uh, a couple hundred speeches probably, and uh, almost always I'll ask the audience for a show of hands. And I'll, the first question I'll often say is, how many of you have battled or are battling a mental illness like depression or anxiety or bipolar or OCD? The garden variety mental illnesses, the most common ones. And some people put up their hands and it's always underrepresented because, you know, there's people that don't want to put up their hands. And I say, hey, uh, you know, I respect that. I'm not trying to out anyone, but I'm trying to talk about this in a way that maybe next time you would put up your hand. And then I'll say, how many of you care about someone currently or have in the past with serious mental illness to the point where it's affected your life? I don't mean that someone who lived down the street took three months off for depression and you walked by and saw him on the street and thought, wow, he looks like crap. That's not being affected by somebody else's mental illness, but where it really affected you. Everyone puts up their hand. Well, let's say 99% of people put up their hands. We all care about someone. We're all in a position where um, we try to make a difference in someone's life who's got a mental illness. And it's impossible to do that unless you lead with the words, I don't understand what you're going through. I have no idea. I'm sorry if I made suggestions in the past, but I realized from listening to this podcast that I don't understand it and that I owe it to you to say I don't understand what you're going through. You need to tell me how I can help you. I don't know because instinctively, I have no idea. Like you said, instinctively, if someone has a broken leg, you know, hey, I should uh, I should help them go over to the couch because they can't walk. I'll put them on the couch, put a pillow under their leg, get them a drink, give them the channel changer to watch TV. And if they're taking medication, give them the medication. But there's nothing like that. When it comes to mental health and the first most important thing you can do as a caregiver is to tell them you thought you understood, you thought you'd been through it, but you haven't been. And from now on, you're going to, when you say, how are you doing? You're going to add, what does this feel like? If you want to tell me, please tell me what you're feeling so I can at least understand in a little way what it is you're going through. Communication is so key. Michael, you've long been an ambassador for Bell's Let's Talk program. Apparently, it wasn't just a corporate feel-good initiative, but rather it came out of Bell CEO George Cope's own life experiences. That is uh, that is true. So uh, CTV TSN was owned by uh, a private group and led by a guy named Yvonne Fitzon. It was it was you know like a, it was a cool company to work for in that because there there were no shareholders. Because it was uh, it was the Thompson family and a couple of other different families that owned TSN and CTV, you know, there was no, let's, you know, we got to squeeze more out of this. You know, we got to cut 20 people because we can, and therefore we'll make, you know, 20 times their salaries more next year than this year. So it was a really good place to work from that standpoint. So Bell ends up buying CTV and TSN and... I just started speaking about mental illness openly. The Stefan Riche show was probably about a now a year, year and a half earlier. So I was talking publicly about mental health. When the company was bought by Bell, I read that George Cope had just convinced his board to give him $45 million to help ending the stigma around mental illness uh, over five years. 
And I thought, wow, it's amazing. I like I work for this company, and I'm I, as far as I know, I'm the only one who's really talking about this. So I actually uh, I sent him an email that said, "Hey George, you don't know me. My name is Michael Landsberg, and I talk about mental health. And I know that this is really important to you. It's really important to me. So if if there's anything you know I can do to get the message out, my phone rings and I see George Cope. So I answer it. I go, George." Your sale has not been approved by the CRTC yet. You cannot fire me. It will look terrible. I'm your mental health guy. And he laughs. And I, I like it was a gamble on my part to do that because maybe he's going to go, what a jerk that guy is. But, you know, he told me that when he was young, his mom had depression. She would be hospitalized. No one talked about it. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, and it was devastating uh, to him and his family. And he wanted to try to do what he could to... Uh, create a world where families weren't devastated the same way your work michael these days is best described as wall-to-wall mental health what are you working on and where can we best uh, follow you and what you're working on so i have uh, a couple of sides to me uh one side of me is uh is the sick not weak charitable foundation Uh, my daughter and i launched it as a not-for-profit in 2016 and uh in 2018 we got our charitable designation um, so, um, before that, if you donated money to us, we couldn't give you a tax receipt, but now we can, um, uh, which is a good thing. And our goal, you know, your mandate, you have to, you have to convince the CRA that you're worthy of this and you have to give them a reason why they should give you charitable status. And our reason was our goal is to show Canadians that mental illness is a sickness, not a weakness. Our belief is that at the heart of the stigma is the perception of weakness, that people see depression or anxiety or any of those illnesses as being somehow different than physical illnesses, as somehow being self-inflicted. Like we let them happen to us. We make them happen to us. We expose ourselves to mental illness because of our weakness. And when we're not strong enough to push the mental illness aside, then, you know, we get really sick and we got to take time off work. So the goal was that, and people seemed to embrace it. You know, on Twitter, I started talking uh, about my mental illness probably 2014, uh, and I started using the hashtag SickNotWeak, and, and people liked it because they felt like there was at least one person, me, and a lot more who were using the hashtag who understood them. Andrew, I was speaking in Edmonton five years ago. I give a talk, and when it's over, I always say, you know, I'm just going to stand here, and if you want to talk to me, if you want to talk in private, tell me, uh, but if you want to talk, I'm here. Woman comes up to me crying unconsolably or inconsolably, and I say to her, okay, you know, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, Why don't you take as much time as you need, and then just come back when you can talk. She comes back, and she's still, you know, having a tough time composing herself. So I said to her, okay, well, I'll do the talking. And then when you feel like jumping in, you jump in. But, you know, I'm guessing that you're not emotional in a sad way right now. I don't detect sadness. So she jumps in, wasn't really a jump in. And she says, and I can remember how she said it, how it sounded. I can remember everything about this because this was life changing for me. I said, why are you so emotional? And she answered, because... For the first time in my life, I feel understood. And I, I was like, wow, I think I just learned something. 
because I had just finished speaking for an hour and a half or whatever it was, and I had talked about what depression and anxiety feel like to me. Not what they are, not what the symptoms are for everyone, but what they felt like for me. The loss of the ability to experience joy. The things that I used to do that no longer brought me joy. The loss of self-esteem. The things that I was confident in doing that I was the opposite. Um, the loneliness that I had felt and continue to feel when I'm in real bad shape. And the hopelessness. And she said, I never heard anyone talk about it from a first-person standpoint. N you know, People will say, I have depression. But no one ever talked about what it felt like, what it did to them. And for the first time, I realized that somebody else has gone through exactly the same thing. And that really changed how I saw my value in talking about mental illness. Well, people who want more information and want to reach you, sicknotweek.com, michaellandsberg.ca, anywhere else they should go? Yeah, uh, I would say uh, feel free to email me uh, michael.landsberg at sicknotweek.com. It's, it's long, and I regret the length that we named our charity that because, you know, after a talk, someone will say, uh, you know, I, I have some things I'd like to say, but, you know, I, I want to say them privately or whatever. So I'll say, okay, well, here's my email address, michael.landsberg. And they'll go, M-I-C-H-E-L, no, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Okay, one sec. And then I'll get to Landsberg, and it's like L-A-N-S. No, there's a D in there. Okay, L-D-A-N. So I, now I'm going, holy smokes, the sick, not weak part is going to take a year. So I'm not going to spell it out, michael.landsberg at sicknotweek.com. If, if you feel like you want someone who understands you to talk to, uh, I'm here. Uh, on Twitter, I'm on Twitter every day. Twitter is a really great place to do the things that um, I like to do, which is take short, sort of small comments and post them out there and throw out sometimes anyone else. I do a daily video called the Daily Lands Blog every day. It's a maximum of two minutes and 20 seconds because we put it up on Twitter and it's on Facebook. Uh, and it's just me talking about my experiences with mental illness. So, you know, my goal is just to share. And you click with someone when you share and they realize that as that woman did in Edmonton, somebody understands me. Great spending time with you, Michael. Great getting to know you. And I appreciate you. I appreciate the questions you asked. This was awesome. You know, I do uh, podcasts and you go, well, that was not very engaging for me. One of the keys is, and I'm going to wrap this up because you've just wrapped it up. But one of the keys to being an interviewer is to try to make it fun and interesting and challenging for the person you're interviewing because they're the ones that are doing you the favor. So you did all of that and I appreciate it. Thank you for those kind words. The pleasure was mine. And to the listeners, on behalf of Michael Landsberg, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Kick.
Kits. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast, podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous or sexy catch us on, on the dean blundell network or on our youtube channel or wherever you get your podcasts because democracy, democracy is, is something you do do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. <laughs>